Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to A History of Europe, Key Battles, The Siege of Kherson, Part 5 of 5. Since this is the fifth part of a five-part series, I recommend, if you have not already done so, to listen first to the previous four parts. If you have listened to them, or wish to continue anyway, then without further ado, let's begin. In the year... 972, the prince of the Russians, Svetoslav, was murdered by the banks of the river Dnieper on his way back from military campaign in Bulgaria. The whole future of Kievan Rus was up in the air. Would the principality break up, or would a strong new leader take control? And if the latter, in which direction would he take his people? Svetoslav had been a devout pagan who had no time for Christianity and his grand ambition had been to move or perhaps extend his realm into the Danube Basin. The history of Eastern Europe was at a crossroads, and its future course would depend on what happened in the next years. The man who more than any other set the direction of that course was a son of Svetoslav by the name of Volodymyr, as Ukrainians call him, or Vladimir the Great, as known by the Russians. His warlike father had sought to increase his power solely through military conquest. Vladimir, in contrast, instead of seeking to conquer the Byzantine Empire or parts of it, decided to try and reproduce its culture at his home on the Dnieper. By adopting a system of government and religion of Constantinople, Vladimir is credited with transforming his realm into a true medieval state, with Christianity at the heart of its sense of identity. For this reason, and in no small part thanks to the propaganda value of the primary chronicle, our main source for the period, Vladimir became the symbol of the modern nations of Russia, Ukraine and Belarus. The prospects of the young Vladimir on the death of his father were not promising. His two brothers, Yeropolk and Oleg, had the advantages of not only being older, but also they were legitimate. Vladimir, in contrast, was born to a housekeeper or servant of the royal family by the name of Malusha. As soon as Svetoslav's mother, Olga, a devout Christian, learnt of the pregnancy, she sent Malusha away to a small village, where Vladimir was probably born. Olga eventually relented, though, and agreed for her grandson to be brought up with his two half-brothers. The turbulent six years after the death of Svetoslav revealed one of the fundamental problems of Kievan Rus, namely the transfer of power from one Grand Prince to the next. Paul Robert Magoski describes the problem as such, quote, Traditionally, the Varingian Rus rulers treated the land they controlled as their own private property, 
passing it on to their male offspring. The eldest son as Grand Prince received Kiev, the younger sons other cities and lands. In order to function, this rudimentary system assumed that the brothers would respect one another's individual patrimonies, and the younger brother the hegemony of their elder, the Grand Prince. Instead, conflict between family members proved to be the rule, resulting in internecine warfare following the death of virtually every Grand Prince. End quote. Such conflict took place upon the death of Svatoslav, who was succeeded by his eldest son, Yeropolk. Yeropolk seems to have been in full control of the heartland of his realm around the middle Dnieper, but on the fringes, still 30, was challenged, not only by his brothers, but other local rivals, such as an individual by the name of Rogvalod, who led the city of Polotsk in modern-day Belarus. Vladimir was granted the city of Novgorod, situated near the old settlement of Gorodish, on the banks of the river Volkov, just downstream from its outflow from Lake Ilmen. Since at least the 8th century, the location had been a major hub on the trade routes between the Baltic and the Black Sea. Its old Norse name of Holmgard is mentioned in Norse sagas from an even earlier date, but here historical facts are difficult to untangle from legend. Archaeological evidence suggests that Holmgard, or Gorodish, was most likely the residence of the local Kievan prince, most famously Rurik and his entourage. The town of Novgorod dates from a little later, the second half of the 10th century, hence its name, which means New City in Old Church Slavonic. Novgorod was a proud city, growing prosperous through trade. It bustled with merchants and their boats, with goods from as far afield as Scandinavia and the Caspian Sea. The superb work of the local carpenters was everywhere, in the paving of the main street with timber, a quite sophisticated wooden sewage system consisting of pipes and barrels, and also the largest building in the city, a citadel known in Russian as a Kremlin, from which the word Kremlin is derived. The city was strictly organised according to professions, with specialist streets for the different guilds, for example for nailers or shieldmakers, and its citizens also benefited from a legal system imported from the Vikings, which was highly sophisticated for its time. Fines were applied rather than physical punishment, and calculated in proportion to the defendant's means. The city is also noted for having its history recorded in an early medieval document called the Novgorod Chronicle, which is invaluable for historians to help corroborate the Kievan primary chronicle. With the counsel of his uncle and most trusted adviser, Dobrina, Vladimir wisely did not attempt change on the independent-minded citizens of Novgorod. Meanwhile, conflict broke out between his two brothers, and the younger Oleg was killed in a skirmish between the rival groups. Yeropolk sent his men to Novgorod to search for his half-brother, but by the time they arrived, Vladimir had already fled the city. Yeropolk became the sole ruler of Rus, while Vladimir lived in exile in a Norse court in Scandinavia, possibly that of Harkon Sigurdsson, then ruler of Norway. After two or three years, Vladimir returned at the head of a small retinue recruited among the Norse and regained Novgorod with ease. He next proposed to Rogvalod of Polotsk a marriage tie, whereby he should wed his daughter, Rogneda. According to the primary chronicle, quote, 
Rogvalod inquired of his daughter whether she wished to marry Vladimir. I will not, she replied, draw off the boots of a slave son, but I want Yeropolk instead. The servants of Vladimir returned and reported to him all the words of Rogneda. Vladimir then collected a large army consisting of Rangians, Slavs, Chids and Krivichians, and marched against Rogvalod. At this time the intention was that Rogneda should marry Yeropolk, but Vladimir attacked Palotsk, killed Rogvalod and his two sons, and after marrying the prince's daughter, he proceeded against Yeropolk. The primary chronicle emphasises Vladimir had many warriors, but nevertheless the chances of ousting Yeropolk looked unpromising. Vladimir, though, gained Kiev by trickery and treachery. He managed to recruit to his side the commander of the Kievan troops, named Blud, who advised Yeropolk not to attack Vladimir's forces. Falsely claiming the citizens were plotting to kill him, Blud fooled Yeropolk into abandoning his capital. Vladimir seized Kiev and persuaded his brother to meet and negotiate terms. The primary chronicle continues. Quote, Yeropolk thus went in person to Vladimir, though he had been previously warned by his ally, Voyezhko, not to go. My prince, said he, they will kill you. Flee rather than Petronegs and collect an army. But the prince heeded him not. Yeropolk came accordingly before Vladimir, and when he entered the door, two Varangians stabbed him in the breast with their swords, while Blood shut the doors and would not allow his men to follow him. Thus Yeropolk was slain. The Christian scribes of the Chronicle are scathing about Vladimir's treachery, and equally so about his first act on becoming Prince of Kiev, the making of offerings to the pagan gods. Quote, he set up idols on the hills outside the castle of the hall, one of Perun made of wood with a head of silver, a moustache of gold, and others of Kors, Dajbog, Stribog, Simagal, and Mokosh. The people sacrificed to them, calling them gods, and brought their sons and their daughters to sacrifice to them to these devils. They desecrated the earth with their offerings, and the land of Rus and this hill were defiled with blood. End quote. And so in contrast to his predecessors, who seemed to show only a passive allegiance to their traditional paganism, and therefore general tolerance of differing religions, Vladimir decided to make religion an affair of state. In this way he hoped to make his subjects united under a single ideology, and therefore more loyal to Kievan rule. He was also keen to help legitimise his seizure of power. Another important way to assert his authority and bring unity under his rule was to win military victories. Although less ambitious or focused on war as his father, Vladimir undertook a number of campaigns against his neighbours. In the year 991, he seized a number of small towns from the Poles to the west. The next years were spent subjugating local East Slavic peoples and putting down rebellions. And in 985, he led his army east against the Volga Bulgars. The primary chronicle claims that Vladimir defeated the Bulgars, but it also makes it clear that he failed to win decisively, and the two sides arrived at a negotiated settlement. Vladimir's uncle, Dublina, is said to have advised the prince to focus on easier targets, and that seeking dominance over the Volga Bulgars was futile. By the late 980s, Vladimir was having second thoughts about his religious policy. 
while the idea of a state religion seemed politically wise, the choice of paganism proved inappropriate. Kiev was surrounded by powers with more advanced systems of belief and ritual. Christianity among the Byzantine Greeks in the southwest and Poles in the west, Judaism among the Khazars in the southeast, and the Volga Bulgars to the east had recently converted to Islam, albeit rather superficially. Of these three systems of belief, Christianity was the best known locally. There was a strong Christian presence on the north Black Sea coast, especially Crimea, and in Kiev there were precedents for earlier rulers converting. The motivations for Vladimir, according to Paul Robert Magoski, were threefold. Firstly, the possibility of raising the international prestige of Kievan Rus. Secondly, for developing commercial and diplomatic relations with a Christian world. And thirdly, for consolidating his own personal role over the Slavs, Varingians and other peoples of his realms through common loyalty to a church of which he would be the secular guardian. Vladimir is said to have sent envoys abroad to judge firsthand the major religions of the time, Islam, Judaism, Roman Catholicism and Byzantine Orthodoxy. Islam was rejected on account of the religion's ban on alcohol, although Vladimir may well have considered the religion seriously for political reasons if he had defeated the vulgar Bulgars and so found himself in control of a network of mosques and religious schools which could have provided its people with instructors. Judaism, on the other hand, was always unlikely, since its representatives in the form of the Khazars were in sharp decline at this time, which hardly gave a good impression of the authority of their god. It was a period in which several leaders in northern and eastern Europe were converting to Christianity. Prince Mieszko of Poland and Harold Bluetooth of the Danes adopted the religions in the 960s. And in the 970s, the Hungarian chieftain Geza converted and had his son baptised with the name Stephen. The choice within Christianity was between Catholicism and Orthodoxy, and although an official schism had not yet taken place between the Roman and Greek churches, they had grown steadily apart over the centuries. Emperor Otto III of Germany, the secular head of Catholicism, was a zealous promoter of missionary work, but in the 980s, at the moment Vladimir had to make a decision, it happened that Otto was still a young boy, and his regents were preoccupied with internal affairs. And so, though by no means a foregone conclusion, Vladimir's final choice was in favour of the Byzantine-style orthodoxy. One of the factors was the grand impression given to Vladimir's envoys during their visit to Constantinople. Particularly impressed with their visit to the Hagia Sophia Church, they are said to, quote, "...know not whether we are in heaven or on earth. We only know that God dwells there among the people, and their service is fairer than the ceremonies of other nations." End quote. The story of the conversion of Vladimir and his people to Christianity is linked to the siege of the Crimean city of Kherson in the year 988 located next to the modern port of Sevastopol. The exact series of events is much disputed. I will give the main outline as described in the primary chronicle, and then afterwards give some alternative scenarios which historians have suggested. The story is bound up with the political situation in Constantinople at the time. 
Emperor Basil II, the Bulgar Slayer, was to go on in the future to have a long successful reign and win fame and glory as a great military commander, including at the Battle of Clydon, described in an earlier podcast. But in the late 980s, Basil was in his early to mid-twenties and had only just managed to secure his power base in the capital. In his first couple of years as an independent ruler, Basil had antagonised both the aristocracy and the church and suffered a humiliating defeat against the Bulgarians at the Battle of the Gates of Trajan in August 986. Basil was then forced to deal with a major rebellion led by the military commander Bardas Phocas, who raised an army in Anatolia to try and claim the throne for himself. After his earlier losses in Bulgaria, Basil needed assistance from outside and so sent envoys to Kiev. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Vladimir, on receiving the envoys, saw the opportunity to be able to drive a hard bargain. Here was a rare occasion when the emperor needed a Rus corporation far more urgently than Kiev needed emperors. It just so happened at this moment in time, Vladimir was on the point of making his conversion to Christianity official by being baptised. He saw that by making the most of the situation, he could adopt the religion on terms which most suited him. Some decades ago, his grandmother, Olga, had agreed to convert to Christianity in as part of negotiations with Constantinople, but she had not been able to obtain a Byzantine-funded religious mission or a marriage tie. Vladimir demanded the hand in marriage of Basil's sister, Anna Porphyrogenitus, in return for military assistance. Such a request would at any other time have been out of the question. An imperial princess to marry a foreigner was highly unusual, and a barbarian such as Varingian Rus without precedent. But the situation was exceptional, and Emperor Basil agreed. So Vladimir agreed to send an army, 6,000 strong by one account, which caught the rebels off guard at Chrysophilus by the Bosporus. The intervention turned the tide in favour of the emperor, who was quickly able to reassert his authority in the capital. Basil, however, now delayed carrying out his part of the bargain, apparently hoping to back out of it. So Vladimir decided to apply pressure by attacking the city of Kurzon, also known as Kurzonasus, the main Byzantine city on the Black Sea coast. Surrounded by massive fortifications, Kurzon was a crucial trading hub for Byzantine trade with the northern Black Sea coast. Vladimir identified it as a target for attack to force the emperor back to the negotiating table, and so set off on campaign in 987. According to the primary chronicle, quote, 
Vladimir proceeded with an armed force against Kherson, a Greek city, and its inhabitants barricaded themselves therein. Vladimir halted at the far side of the city, besides the harbour, a bowshot from the town, and the inhabitants resisted energetically while Vladimir besieged the town. Eventually, however, they became exhausted, and Vladimir warned that if they did not surrender, he would remain on the spot for three years. When they failed to heed this threat, Vladimir marshalled his troops and ordered the construction of an earthwork in the direction of the city. Vladimir built a massive earth ramp to help his followers scale the city walls, but the defenders had a cunning way to get round this. Quote, While this work was under construction, the inhabitants dug a tunnel under the city wall, stole the heaped up earth, and carried it into the city, where they piled it up into the centre of the town. End quote. Vladimir Volkov, in his book, Vladimir the Russian King, writes, quote, The truth of the matter was that Vladimir had neither the engineer's expertise nor the right machinery, and that Kazan, defended by stubborn and intelligent citizens, was going to be a hard nut to crack. End quote. Volkov conjectures on the state of mind of Vladimir and suggests he hoped for some kind of divine assistance. Quote, it was the first time he had given his new god a chance to help him, and he prayed to him earnestly. Consciously or semi-consciously, Vladimir must have thought, if he cannot or will not give me this town, what is the point of worshipping him? After six months in the spring of 988, the siege was still dragging on. Basil had no intention of marrying off his sister Anna to Vladimir, nor had he sent any bishops as missionaries. The Rus were perhaps thinking of giving up when, according to a story told by Volkov, they received an unexpected boost. The besieged and the besiegers were exchanging the usual abuse, threats and a few ineffective arrows, some of which carried attached messages, mostly obscene. The message on one arrow fired from the city turned out to be from a Norseman who was sympathetic to the Rus. It gave important information about when and how supplies were still reaching Kazan by small boats under the cover of darkness. On reading the message, Vladimir's hopes grew. A strong detachment was sent to block the harbour and so seal the blockade. The defenders finally started to suffer from the hardships of the siege, but they had made reserves and still did not show the slightest intention of surrendering. Vladimir would not be able to maintain the siege indefinitely and urgently needed a breakthrough. Fortunately for him, one was achieved by a second message, sent by an arrow, as the primary chronicle describes. Quote, then a man of Kerzon, Anastasius by name, shot into the Rus camp an arrow on which he had written, There are springs behind you to the east, from which water flows in pipes. Dig down and cut them off. When Vladimir received this information, he raised his eyes to heaven and vowed that if this hope was realised, he would be baptised. He gave orders straight away to dig down above the pipes, and the water supply was thus cut off. The inhabitants were accordingly overcome by thirst and surrendered. End quote. So with their water supply cut off, the citizens had no choice but to finally yield. A triumphant Vladimir entered Kazan at the head of his army. According to Volkov, unlike after most sieges of the age, the victors did not sack or loot their prize. Not one prisoner was killed, and not one home was plundered. 
However, Vladimir chose not to disband his army yet. He sent envoys to Constantinople, demanding battle fulfil the promises he had made earlier. Otherwise, he threatened, If you do not give me your sister in marriage, I shall do to Constantinople what I have done to Kurzan. If the emperor had been in a stronger position, he would have been able to resist the demands. But the situation as it was, Basil finally relented and agreed to send Anna to marry Vladimir. That was the traditional story of the siege of Kazan, but what really happened is much debated by scholars. The main source, the primary chronicle of Kiev, was written after the event, draws on different sources itself and may well be biased. One alternative is that Vladimir's attack on Kazan at first had nothing to do with negotiations with Byzantium. Perhaps, writes John Shepherd, Kazan, having prospered greatly in the 10th century, was simply too tempting target for an attack, and Vladimir simply took advantage of Basil's preoccupation with rebellions to raid the richest town in Crimea. As part of an ensuing treaty, he may well have later sent Basil military aid. In an alternative scenario suggested by Andrei Popper, Emperor Basil honoured his commitment to Vladimir in a timely manner, and Anna and Vladimir had already married by the time of the siege of Kazan. The objective of the campaign was then not to force the emperor to fulfil his pledge, but to assist him by suppressing rebels who supported the pretender to the imperial throne, Bardas Focus. Popper justified his account by describing the traditional version as a legend compiled over 100 years after the events, not with the intention of accurately recording the facts, but to create a legend about the baptism of Vladimir and the conversion of his people to Christianity. Whatever the truth of the details, the central fact is that Vladimir in some way was able to seize on a period of turmoil in Byzantium to drive a hard bargain with the emperor. But it was the religious event, that is, the conversion of the Rus, not the military victory itself which gives the siege of Kazan such historical importance. Vladimir controlled Kazan for a very brief period, and the Slavs were not ruled over the Pontic steppe or anywhere near Crimea until many centuries later. Whether or not the Primary Chronicle is factually correct, its authors created a legend which resonates still today. This legend was fostered by the grand spectacles staged in the wake of Vladimir's baptism in the church of St. Basil in Kazan. The idol of the pagan god Perun, it is said, was dragged by a horse's tail and thrashed with rods before being tossed into the river. Therefore, according to the primary chronicle, Kiev citizens were ordered into the water of the Dnieper River for mass baptism. Quote, Vladimir sent heralds throughout the whole city to proclaim that if any inhabitants, rich or poor, did not betake himself to the river, he would risk the prince's displeasure. The next day the prince went forth to the Dnieper with the priests of the princess and those from Kazan, and a countless multitude assembled. They all went into the water, some stood up to their necks and others to their breasts, and the younger near the bank, some of them holding children in their arms, while the adults waded further out. The priest stood by and offered prayers. End quote. Jonathan Shepherd warns that this account of events must be qualified. In the Cambridge History of Russia, Volume 1, he writes that a fair proportion of the Rus elite were probably more or less Christian already beforehand, 
and conversely, the extent of the conversion of ordinary folk, especially those living in rural areas, is very uncertain. Nevertheless, Shepherd continues, Vladimir did succeed in embedding the Orthodox religion in Kievan society. No aspiring prince in Rus attempted to mount a pagan revival. Unlike some contemporary usurpers were trying at the time in Scandinavia. The adoption of Christianity by Vladimir had a profound impact on Kievan Rus. The Church, writes Janet Martin, in her book Medieval Russia, 984 to 1584, quote, became a second institution, along with the Ruriki dynasty, that gave shape and definition to the emerging state. It turned the face of Kievan Rus from the Muslim East, whose wealth had originally drawn the Rus to the lands of the Eastern Slavs, towards Byzantium, and served as a vehicle for the influx of a range of cultural influences asserted with Christianity into Kievan Rus. End quote. One unintended consequence, however, of adopting the religion of Constantinople over that of Rome would be a cultural separation from Western Europe, a separation which ended up creating a deep cultural split between West and East Europe, which continues today. And as an Orthodox country, Russia was not affected by the religious movements of the West, including the Reformation. Vladimir made great strides in forging a new state, not only by the adoption of Christianity. He built new fortresses and settlements along the middle Dnieper and appointed his many sons to rule the various towns of his realm, displacing the old tribal leaders. This, together with the sending out of clerics on missions to instruct the population on Christianity, laid the foundation for the transformation of his domain, from a conglomeration of tribes, not only the Slavic but also Finno-Ugrins, into an integrated realm, bound by a common religion and cultural ties, as well as the political structure provided by the dynasty. Shepherd expands on this point, writing, The coming of Christianity fostered economic well-being, fellow settlement of the Black Earth region and cultural advanced, while a kind of cult of personality now invested Vladimir, accentuating the aura of princely blood. Still though, by the time of Vladimir's death, particularly in the north, were large groups of people who were largely independent in day-to-day matters. It was left to his successors to continue the project, and he was fortunate to be succeeded by capable rulers. Vladimir's achievements were built upon by one of his sons, Yaroslav the Wise, whose long reign until 1054 saw the beginning of the Golden Age of Kievan Rus. Known as the father-in-law of Europe by marrying his sons and daughters to the royal families of Poland, Byzantium, Hungary, Norway and France, Yaroslav oversaw his country's zenith in terms of military power and cultural achievements. Ultimately, though, like the earlier Carolingian Empire in Western Europe, the Kievan state was broken apart by internecine rivalry. And in the 13th century, the all-conquering Mongol hordes would come to crush the political order founded by the Rus. Yet also, like the Carolingians, the Rurikid dynasty, by establishing a successful model state, inspired later generations. Kievan Rus, writes Sergei Plucky in his book The Origins of the Slavic Nations, quote, left a strong legacy in the region in terms of historical memory, law, religion and ultimately identity, 
which was adopted in one form or another by all of its former subjects, leaving a lasting reason to recover and reinvent the Rus' identity for generations to come. End quote. The Crimean Peninsula holds a special place in the hearts and minds of Orthodox Russians, Belarusians and Ukrainians, not just because of its great beauty, abundant natural resources and strategic position, but because of its intimate connection with the most important spiritual and cultural event in the history of those three peoples, the Christianization of the Rus, an intrinsic part of a political identity forged more than 11 centuries ago. Probably the greatest challenge for medieval Russia arrived in the early 13th century in the form of a powerful tribe from Central Asia who was sweeping all opposition aside. In the next episode, I will talk about the impact of Genghis Khan and his successors on Eastern Europe. If you enjoyed these episodes on Kievan Rus, it would be great if you could give me a review on iTunes or a like on Facebook. It would also be great to hear any comments or suggestions you might have for the podcast. You can get in touch on the Facebook page, that's www.facebook.com stroke History or the blog, which is at www.historyeurope.net or you can write to me directly to carl at historyeurope.net I hope you can join me for the next episode, which will come out in three weeks' time. I will describe the story of the arrival of the Mongols in Europe and the resistance put up by the Russians, focusing primarily on the Battle of the Kalka River of 1223. Until then, thanks for listening and goodbye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.